Greetings, everyone. I am Jesse Hippo Rosario, Director of Member Relations here at ASHP, and thank you for joining. I am excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional program at the 2021 ASHP Specialty Pharmacy Conference. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at ASHP's summer meetings and exhibition. Good afternoon and welcome to Managing Biosimilars, a specialty all its own. My name is Isha Rana and I'm a Pharmacy Administrative Specialist in Formulary Management and Drug Information at Houston Methodist. I'm joined by Shobha Bhatt, a Gastroenterology Clinical Pharmacist at Cleveland Clinic. First, let's begin with biosimilar overviews and trends. Biosimilars are biological agents that are highly similar to an FDA-approved reference product with no clinically meaningful differences in safety, purity, and potency. Biosimilars uh, undergo an abbreviated approval process in which the Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, analyzes data from analytical, animal, and clinical studies, also known as totality of evidence, to assess for structural and functional similarities. Biosimilars may also then, based on this data, gain additional FDA approval for other indications without warranting additional studies, which is a process known as extrapolation. It is important to note that biosimilars are not generic due to the molecular makeup of these medications. However, the landscape of biosimilars in the United States is actually quite variable. Of the 29 FDA-approved biosimilars, only 68% are actually commercially available for patient use. Additionally, the use of individual biosimilars further varies. Okay, so in the last decade or so that biosimilars have had an approval pathway in the U.S., their adoption and integration into our healthcare system has been relatively slow. And while the reasons for that are multifactorial, one of the reasons might lie in regulatory setbacks that have either delayed or complicated the entry of biosimilars to the U.S. market. For example, prior to March 2020 of last year, there was um, insulin and human growth hormone products were regulated under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act as uh, small molecule products. And the FDA realized this to be a hurdle for biosimilar entry and changed their designation to being regulated under the Public Health Service Act as biologics. And while seemingly inconsequential, what this did was allow for any future follow-on products to be designated as biologics, as biosimilars, and be approved through the biosimilar abbreviated pathway. As we saw in an earlier slide, while we do have biosimilars that are approved for Tanercept and Adalimumab, they are not yet available on the U.S. market due to patent exclusivity for the reference product. And in May of 2021, the Supreme Court denied review of an Atanercept biosimilar case, upholding an earlier court's decision to extend Enbrel's patent until 2029. So while we do have Atanercept biosimilars available, we effectively won't see any on the U.S. market for almost another decade. There's also been congressional uh, scrutiny on this matter with a House Committee on Oversight and Reform hearing in May of 2021 that had bipartisan scrutiny on tactics employed by AbbVie, the manufacturer of Humira, to delay adalimumab biosimilar market entry until 2023. There's also a concept of interchangeability which may have also hindered biosimilar uptake. And essentially an interchangeable product is a product that's a biosimilar that has met additional requirements allowing for substitution at the pharmacy without the intervention of a healthcare professional. 
In practice, what this looks like is allowing for a generic product to be substituted in lieu of a branded product um, for small molecule entities without a prescriber's intervention. This is essentially defined in the FDA's purple book, analogous to the FDA's orange book for small molecule products. And there are additional switching studies that are required to have this interchangeability designation. Um, now these switching studies are conducted to ensure that multiple switches between a reference and biosimilar product do not have any clinically meaningful impact on safety, efficacy, or immunogenicity. While there are no um, interchangeable products on the market at this time, at least 45 states and Puerto Rico have established standards that either permit or require pharmacists to dispense an interchangeable biosimilar in certain scenarios, particularly if a biosimilar is less costly than another product. So in this next section, we'll discuss the formulary review process for biosimilars specifically and how that might differ from the review process for small molecule products or originator biologics. So the way we approach biosimilar formulary review is we present these as a review of all available biosimilars for each reference product. So this essentially looks almost like a class review. And we've established therapeutic interchanges for reference product and all of their available biosimilars. The way that that's differed from some of our small molecule therapeutic interchanges is that we've incorporated definitions for biosimilar and interchangeable since that is something that's unique to the biosimilar space. And we've also allowed for use of a non-preferred biosimilar without a formulary request if it's required due to a patient's payer mandate. And that again is a little bit different from small molecule products where we typically would require a non-formulary request for non-formulary use. And lastly, our biosimilars are typically added to a therapeutic interchange for all FDA approved indications of the reference product unless otherwise noted. And this becomes important, especially when we see variations between approved indications for the reference product as well as the biosimilar. Something that's been fairly unique to the biosimilar space has been variation in coverage between major payers. So for reference products and uh, originator biologics, typically the coverage policies across payers is fairly consistent and it's well outlined in terms of criteria for coverage. But with multiple biosimilars for reference products on the market currently, what you may start to see is one major payer saying that they consider biosimilars A and B to be preferred, and another major payer saying that they consider biosimilars X and Y to be their preferred products. And what this does is makes it very difficult for health systems to actually drill down their use to a single preferred product, which is of course what we'd like to do as a health system to streamline our inventory, our information systems, and of course, from a medication safety perspective. So prior to selecting a single preferred product, we will do a comprehensive assessment of our system payer mix and the medical coverage policies for those major payers, and look to see, is there a clear product that's kind of the front runner across our major payers to be their preferred um, biosimilar? And this is where it really helps to have a great working relationship with your managed care department so you can be made aware of any upcoming changes to payer formularies or to have a working relationship with the manufacturer and a representative as they're typically able to share any changes to payer formulary preferences as well. There's also multiple factors that can affect reimbursement and this is particularly in the Medicare space. So when a new product is launched to the market that's covered under Medicare Part B, Typically for about the first two quarters, its reimbursement is determined as wholesale acquisition cost plus 3%.
And that's because there just simply hasn't been enough sales data generated for there to be an average sales price calculation. After about the first two quarters, once there has been enough sales data, that reimbursement will typically change to ASP plus 6%. So if you're choosing a biosimilar very early in its, uh, in its uh, time period on the market, what you might be seeing is a temporarily or artificially inflated reimbursement that might actually change after a few quarters on the market. Another thing to consider is pass-through status, which typically lasts for about two to three years after product approval. And once that designation expires, uh, 340B facilities specifically can expect to see their reimbursement change from ASP plus 6% to ASP minus 22.5%. So all this to say that there are multiple factors that can affect biosimilar reimbursement over time. And it's a good idea to get this information in front of relative uh, relevant departments within your hospital early on. So there's no uh, surprises down the line when these changes do happen. And perhaps the most important piece of our formulary process has been coordinating education and outreach to our providers. And the way we've done that is by soliciting very specific points of concern and hesitation from our provider population and targeting our education to those specific points. So I've created and presented an overview of biosimilar approval processes, as well as regulatory considerations and some of those that we've discussed today, and as well as terminology that's very specific to the biosimilar space and presented this to targeted stakeholder groups, everything from our medication use and formulary evaluation subcommittee, our PT committee, physician and pharmacy team meetings. Um, we've disseminated this through our PT newsletter, which goes out to all of our providers system-wide, and as well as ad hoc meetings to targeted groups like managed care, revenue cycle, and our pre-authorization teams. And last but not least, uh, one of the most important things we've done is identify a physician champion that's a real advocate and a real supporter for biosimilars and their, their promise and potential. And this becomes really helpful for facilitating peer-to-peer -peer discussion and outreach should that need arise. So as a health system, we began this comprehensive educational outreach campaign at the beginning of 2020. And over the course of the next year or so, all the way through quarter one of 2021, our health system has now approved a therapeutic interchange for all of the available biosimilars on the market. When we talk about what the ideal workflow for biosimilar adoption is, there's essentially five main steps. First, it's important that the biosimilar is actually launched into the market. Potential barriers that may occur with this step include patent issues, clinical criteria used not being met, and issues with knowledge translation and dissemination. Next, the payers must then go on to adopt biosimilars. However, potential barriers with this step include insurance formulary, um, process, and cost issues. Next, the health systems and pharmacies must adopt biosimilars. However, as we kind of already covered, it can be a large undertaking consisting of PNT processes, establishing uh, purchasing contracts and IT infrastructure, establishing prior authorization support, adhering to state laws, and making sure that there's a streamlined clinical workflow for biosimilar adoption and use. Next, the prescriber must then be uh, ordering the biosimilar. However, this is really contingent on comfort level and knowledge, as well as perception. And lastly, the patient can then initiate the biosimilar. However, use and response will also likely be influenced by comfort level and perception. That being said, there are ways to overcome these stakeholder barriers. When we talk about the pharmacist and um, physician and provider cohort, 
it is important to provide ongoing education and review of literature and position statements. For example, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation for Inflammatory Bowel Disease and the National Comprehensive Cancer Network have both issued position statements supporting the use of biosimilars in these populations. Next, we can also focus on optimizing prescribing, advocating for interchangeability status, and helping to streamline biosimilar transition and use. It is also important to assure uh, that post-transition or post-use of biosimilars that clinical and safety outcomes are not going to change. And one way that we can do this is to implement a pharmacovigilance program to assure that these outcomes are similar. And lastly, because a lot of biosimilars are being primarily used for cost savings, it is important to be transparent about this process and where the cost savings are going to. From a patient perspective, we want to make sure that we're optimizing patient education and perception of biosimilars. We want to promote um, the importance of shared decision-making and the process of uh, getting patients on the biosimilars. And lastly, it's important to provide reassurance that the standard of care is going to be the same irrespective of what medication they're on. So in our experience, we identified the following to be best practices for biosimilar adoption. First, it's critical to meet with stakeholders to emphasize biosimilar benefits, address any concerns that they might have about this process or the biosimilar product itself, uh, review existing data and guidelines, support, and position statements, and agree upon a biosimilar adoption process. It would be best to have one team, ideally pharmacy, to oversee the process from beginning to end. If, from a patient perspective, we want to ensure that we're integrating shared decision-making and providing education. And lastly, to ensure and provide reassurance that there's no compromise of safety and clinical efficacy with biosimilar use, you should consider implementing our monitoring program post-biosimilar adoption. So some key takeaways from today's presentation are that due to anticipated cost savings, biosimilar product availability and adoption is expected to increase significantly in the future. And there are several unique considerations for biosimilar formulary review that might differ from those for biologics or small molecule products. And lastly, biosimilar adoption within health systems can be a successful endeavor with the inclusion of stakeholders, recognition of existing barriers, and implementation of a streamlined workflow. Thanks so much for listening in today. It is content like this that makes the ASHP summer meetings and exhibition the place to learn and take your practice to the next level. The upcoming summer meeting specialty track will take place in June and will feature current topics that our specialty practitioners have identified as top of mind, including new drug pipeline updates, specialty pearls, legal and accreditation updates, and so much more. Until then, this is Jesse Hippo-Rosario from ASHP Official, and thank you for all that you do for your patients.